0: Welcome to the next installment of Your God is Still Too Small. Right, wrong, and the moral God. Here is your snippet for the day. If you can sense the rhythm, you've got to feel for what's right and wrong, but you're not also sensing the rhythm of God, then your God is still too small. This is one of the most important classes in this series that I can teach. And your written handout uh, doesn't contain enough information, but it contains more than I'm going to be able to cover up here. So I urge you to keep it, and I urge you to look at it, and I urge you to chew on it. Some of what we're saying is... is is really something to really chew on. And if you're younger than the age of 30 and you're listening to this, then I not only invite you to chew on it more, but I want you to email me if you choose to, because I want more. I, you, this is a vital message, in my opinion, about who God is. I want to go back in time a little bit. When J.B. Phillips wrote Your God is Too Small in 1951 or 52, I don't remember the date exactly. Uh, we were still trying to unpack what had gone on in Nazi Germany. We've been able to unpack it a lot since then. September fifteenth, nineteen thirty-five, was a significant date on the Nazi calendar. That was the date that Hitler passed what are called or were called the Nuremberg Laws. The Nuremberg Laws came out, and what they did basically is make it. Uh, uh, very difficult on Jews. The Jews lost their citizenship with those laws. They weren't allowed to vote. They weren't allowed to do a number of things like that. They lost their rights to marry Germans. A Jew was not allowed to marry a German. There was a debate that arose out of this as to what it meant to be a Jew, so they had to supplement the laws to talk about, well, if you had uh, three or four Jewish grandparents, you're definitely a Jew. If you had two of four or one of four, then you're a middling. And those lost rights as well. The Jews not only lost those rights, they lost their rights to work. There were some towns where it was illegal for the Jews to go in. The Jews couldn't be doctors, they couldn't be lawyers, they couldn't be teachers. There were a number of different jobs. At one point they passed laws, Jews couldn't own a cat. They basically made it illegal to be a Jew. Now we know a lot of this went on. And this, I'm not telling you something new, though I am telling you some things maybe that you haven't thought of in a while, or maybe in a little more detail than you know. Everybody knows about the horrific, horrific concentration camps that were there. Uh, the, the 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 world first started learning about them when the the Nazi regime started crumbling, and these concentration camps would get liberated by Allied forces. But afterwards, in the same town city that had been responsible for the naming of the Nuremberg laws that made it illegal to be a Jew, that's where the trials were held of the war criminals in the Nazi regime. You can read those trial transcripts. They're in multi-volumes. I've put volume two up here. But they're in multi-volumes. You can read them and it will send chills down your spine. It sends chills down your spine at the same time it makes you nauseated. It makes you wonder what could ever go on that would allow something like this to occur. In there, you'll read the testimony of Otto Allendorf. Otto Allendorf looks, uh, this is his mugshot uh, uh, that he gave before his trial. This is him actually testifying in the trial. He was a lawyer by training who was put in charge of one of the four Einstein's units. These were the units that were in, responsible for killing the Jews. And not just Jews, they killed a number of other groups as well that were deemed inadequate people. And, and his, his affidavit that he put in before his testimony is, is so disturbing in how clinical it was. I've put some of it up here for you to read. He said, "...the Einstadt unit, which was the special action group in charge of exterminating Jews, would enter a village or town and order the prominent Jewish citizens to call together all the Jews for purpose of resettlement." They were requested to hand over their valuables, and shortly before execution, to surrender their outer clothing. They were transported to the place of executions, usually an anti-tank ditch in trucks, only as many as could be executed immediately, so the span of time from the time they knew what was going to happen till the execution was as short as possible. Then they were shot, kneeling or standing, by firing squads in a military manner, and the corpses were thrown into the ditch. That antiseptic. In addition to his testimony, by the way, he was convicted. He was hung three years later. Um, Herman Grivey, and if someone could, if I could borrow a sheet, a lesson from someone. I didn't walk with one up here. Thank you. I didn't put Herman's information up here. I know we've got some young kids, and, 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 but this is real. Uh, I didn't put it up there because I just couldn't bear to retype it again. Typing it once bothered me, but I want you to hear his testimony. This is what this German engineer said. He was in the Ukraine where one of the Einsteins units were working, and, and he saw this. He said, the people who had got off the trucks, men, women, and children of all ages, had to undress upon the order of an SS man who carried a riding or dog whip. They had to put down their clothes in fixed places, sorted, according to shoes, top clothing, and underclothing. I saw a heap of shoes of about 800 to 1,000 pairs. Without screaming or weeping, these people, undressed, stood around in family groups, kissed each other, said farewells, and waited for, another, for a sign from another SS man who stood near the pit. An old woman with snow-white hair was holding a one-year-old child in her arms and singing to it and tickling it. The child was cooing with delight. The parents were looking on with tears in their eyes. The father was holding the hand of a boy about 10 years old and speaking to him softly, the boy was fighting his tears. The father pointed to the sky, stroked his head and seemed to explain something to him. At that moment, the SS man at the pit shouted something to his comrade. The latter counted off about 20 persons and instructed them to go behind the earth mound. I remember a girl, slim and with black hair, who, as she passed close to me, pointed to herself and said, 23 years old. I walked around the mound and found myself confronted by a tremendous grave. People were closely wedged together and lying on top of each other so that only their heads were visible. Some of the people were still moving. I looked for the man who did the shooting. He was an SS man who sat at the edge of the narrow end of the pit, his feet dangling into the pit. He had a Tommy gun on his knees and was smoking a cigarette. Herman Greib uh, uh, subsequently got honors. He was like uh, Mr. Schindler of Schindler's List, someone who after this was so moved that he started helping the Jews that he could and uh, was a tremendous man. Those stories send chills down the spine even as they leave a knot in the stomach and in the throat. That that could really have happened, and not just once, but to millions of people. You know, the thing is, for all of the information we live in, do we know and recognize that that's not the only time in history? Do we just gloss over the ethnic cleansing in Sudan that's happened in our lifetime? Have you seen the government's report on the ethnic cleansing in Kosovo and the tens of thousands that were killed just in a matter of a couple of months within the last couple of decades? Pol Pot and the killing fields and the Cambodian genocide program where a third of the population of Cambodia was killed? And This is outrageous. There is a debate among scholars of who was the 20th century's bloodiest tyrant. Isn't it appalling that that could be subject to a debate that we can't just say, Oh, of course it was. Oh, of course it was Hitler. Or, oh, of course it was Stalin. Or, oh, of course it was Mao. But we can't. If you want to look for just total deaths, it's Mao, 40 million. But a lot of those deaths came because of economic restructuring and famine and things of that nature. So people say, well, maybe we shouldn't look at total deaths. Maybe instead we should look at deliberate deaths. People who were deliberately killed or died rather than people who just died as a result of policies. At that point, it's not Mao. At that point, it's Hitler with 34 million. But Hitler at 34 million with deliberate deaths may not be the right way to look at it either because a lot of those were soldiers who were fighting. And so technically they were designated as potential to die on their own accord by the fact that they went to battle. So if we want to talk about unarmed deaths with people who aren't soldiers but are deliberately killed, now we go to Stalin with his 20 million. Who was the century's bloodiest tyrant? It's anybody's bet. But what happened, I think, is appalling and I suspect everybody here would agree. Now one of the fun things about going to Oxford is it gave me a chance to renew an acquaintance with some of my son's friends. And I had an interesting conversation with both the believer who studied Nazi Germany and a gentleman who was receiving his degree in ethics. And we talked about the ethics of this situation. I don't know anybody in this audience that's listening to this either live or maybe even through the internet who wouldn't agree with me immediately what Hitler did was wrong. It was wrong. And it's the reason that I have chosen such an extreme example in this class because in this class, I want us to discuss right and wrong. And I thought, well, I'm not going to take something that's debatable with a lot of people. I'm going to take something where most everybody's going to agree. When I was talking to the ethics doctor now at, at, from Oxford, he would readily agree that what happened in Nazi Germany was wrong. But I want to know why. I don't know what makes it wrong. You may think, well, I I got that. Time out. Let's look at it together. I want to look at it with these questions. Why would Hitler do something like that? Was he just such a whack job? I mean, what is it that would ever enable not just Hitler, but the other leaders to oversee such a thing? And then I want to ask, can we affirmatively say it was morally wrong? Can we unequivocally, affirmatively say what he did was a moral error, sin, wrong, whatever word you want to use, but word of that value? And if so, how do we know that? All right, let's start with why would Hitler do such a thing? It's real easy just to say he's a nut job, but that's not enough. Because there's more to the story. And if we don't understand what more to the story there is, then we're opening ourselves and our culture to similar events again. So I could go back further, but in the interest of time, we're just going back to 1859. Darwin published On the Origin of the Species. He published it in November of 1859. He had to hurry it out because it looked like someone else was coming out with it. So he hurried to press with his ideas. Here's what Darwin, and you may say, well, I know Darwin, that's evolution. If you haven't read Darwin, just humor me and listen to this for a moment because it's important. Darwin wrote, and his premise was this, food supplies are never enough to meet population's demands. And that was an idea that had been floating around. Thomas Malthus wrote on it 50 years earlier in England. The idea that food supplies are never enough to meet population's demand. As Malthus said, food supply changes arithmetically. Today we make 10, tomorrow we make 11 loaves of bread. The next day 12, the next day 13. We can do one more field of wheat. We can do one more field of wheat. But people reproduce geometrically. You got two kids or three kids, and then your three or four kids have three or four kids who have three or four kids. So you can have... Population quickly outstripping the resources to feed. The food supplies and other resources are never enough for how many people there are. Premise. Next premise. Individuals that are more suited to the environment will thrive and survive and will breed over those who are less suitable. To illustrate this, I brought us a loaf of bread. It's a partial loaf. There's only three pieces, and one of them's a heel. Three pieces. Now, we have here a population of five critters. We got this rascal Flats bear. We got the Twizzler bear. We have the victory camp. We have the little bitty puppy dog. And we have a leprechaun care bear. Okay. We got five bears. And we only are animals. And we only have three pieces of bread. This is a classic Darwin situation. Darwin says the ones who are going to get to keep living. And the ones who are going to get to reproduce. Are the ones that are more suited to eating this bread, and to getting it, and acquiring it, and maintaining it. Obviously, the dog's going to get some bread. Uh, Twizzlers, hey, probably his teeth have rotted out, so he probably couldn't eat the bread. Rascal Flats, country music, bread, they go together. <laughs> Although bread was technically more of a folk rock group. Um, <laughs> Victory camp. Well, you can't send him away empty-handed. So these three are thriving and surviving. They get to breed for another day. These two, they're goners. And that is Darwin. And if you doubt it, look at the rest of the title of his work. It wasn't just on the origin of the species. It was also titled or preservation of favored races in the struggle for life. These are the favored races. Those are not. And that's the premise of Darwin. That's what he wrote. Now, it got grabbed up immediately by the academic community, which was already germinating on these ideas themselves. So, Darwin publishes this in 1859. Five years later, another biologist fella from England named Herbert Spencer wrote. And he, Herbert Spencer, is responsible for coining the phrase Survival of the fittest These are more fit for survival And that's a phrase Darwin would later use himself But in a different way, a little bit These are more fit for survival than those So the fit will survive And Spencer took Darwin's idea and started applying it to economics And to many other things as well We got a social Darwinism where all of a sudden now those who are more socially and physically fit are the survivors. They're the ones destined for the future of evolution. And the others are the losers that are going to die out. Progress means the better people will reproduce and evolve and the less fit people will die out. That's progress for the human race. This is groundwork that was laid. This is groundwork that was come upon by a German scholar, Friedrich Wilhelm Nietzsche. Nietzsche was born to a Lutheran minister, and at the age of 20, he lost his faith. And studying as a philosopher and a philologist, Nietzsche comes out and he starts writing some very disturbing things before he goes crazy and dies in 1900. His crazy things included a challenge to good and evil. He said there's not good and evil in this objective sense. He called Christianity the Platonism of its day. He said like Plato dreamed up there's this ideal good and ideal evil. Christians dream up that same concept that there's a a good and an evil. There's not. He said throw that away. Good and evil is only something you're imagining. Good and evil need to be really what helps society progress. That's how we should define it. Not by some abstract idea that some Christians may have thought of. So good and evil is only what helps society advance. In fact, he wrote about the Ubermensch, the Superman... The superior human that will come about one day through evolution. We're just, he said, right now, think of evolution like this, he said. Little worm ultimately becomes ape that ultimately becomes us. And we're embarrassed of the poor ape. We're thinking, oh, it's so embarrassing. We used to be an ape. So he thought. Oh, it's embarrassing we used to be an ape. He said, in like manner, when the Superman is finally evolved, they'll look back on us as the ape. Now, this is what Nietzsche wrote. So we've got Darwinism evolving through Nietzsche's philosophy. And what do we have at this point in time? Well, Hitler is 11 when Nietzsche dies. Hitler tries to take over through the beer garden push but is unsuccessful and is imprisoned for a year in the 20s. While Hitler's imprisoned, he writes Mein Kampf, German, for my struggle. Kampf is also the key word in the German translation of Darwin, where Darwin wrote over and over the struggle for survival. And Hitler plays off of that. This was Hitler's struggle. Now that is part biography, part political machinations, and part just propaganda. But you read Mein Kampf and you get a very clear direction of where Hitler's going. Hitler is about establishing Nietzsche's super race. Hitler buys into it hook, line, and sinker. Now Nietzsche is dead at this point in time, but Nietzsche's sister is publishing all of his works. Here's a picture of Hitler greeting the sister. Hitler went to her funeral... Hitler and the Nazi regime paid money for the Nietzsche archives. Hitler posed for this famous picture of him and the bust of Nietzsche. Hitler gets the full picture. Nietzsche is only half there. Hitler had set about trying to do... What Nietzsche said should be done. And we can sit here and say, what Hitler did was wrong. Oh, I just can't conceive of doing that. But from his frame of mind, he was doing the world's greatest good. He was taking the world and purifying it from the dross and taking what shines and sparkles and letting it breed into superhumanity. And if you have the same preconceptions... If your worldview, or as Hitler would have called it, the Weltanschauung, if your worldview is the same as his, how on earth can you argue what he was doing was wrong? If there is no God, if there is no good and evil in any ultimate sense, and we only measure good by what does the best for society, then we are in his camp. If we're not, I mean, we we just are. Why would he do such a thing? That's why. Now, can we say it was morally wrong? And if so, how do we know it was morally wrong? Those are the next questions I want to get to. And it's so interesting to me because there are ethical people. I, God bless them and I pray for them. But I have had multiple ethic conversations with people from, with Oxford educations who are supposed to be the creme de la creme. And I'm sorry, I am a lawyer. And sometimes it oozes out. But as a lawyer, I am trained for the last 30 years at knowing the difference between a witness telling the truth and a witness who's dancing on the stand. The truth is not all that complicated dancing is da, 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 and distraction and ah uh, and ah uh. and i've been very diligently trying to ask how can you with your view of ethics tell me and convince me that what hitler did was wrong and after all of the dancing Generally, the idea has been, well, it just was. And I felt like I was talking to someone who had stuck their head in the ground like an ostrich and had no way of explaining it, that was rational and reasonable. They just want because they can't defend it. No one can defend. No one in their sane mind would defend what Hitler did. Regardless of the fact that he may have had all of these ideas, if Nietzsche were alive, maybe he would defend it, but he died of insanity. No sane person can defend it. Today, at least. So tell me why. This is a study called meta-ethics. Where do your ethics come from? Tell me why you know it's wrong. How do we decide right and wrong? Oh, they'll say, well, it's what helps society. Don't fall into that trap. Don't fall in. Now, listen, I'm not just talking about Hitler here. I want to talk about our society and how we address and determine what right and wrong is. Okay? Okay. I just am not picking out our hot issues of right and wrong because I don't want you to say, well, I just disagree with that. I want to pick one you can't disagree with. Hitler killing Jews no one's going to disagree with. It was wrong. Why? The answer can't be, well, it's what helps society is an okay thing to do. That's what we need to be doing. That's what Hitler was doing in his mind. So if we don't have what helps society, maybe it's what helps the individual. I'm going to decide right and wrong by what I like. It is right to eat chicken fried steak for breakfast. With extra gravy and mashed potatoes made with real butter and cream. Sopped up with biscuits made with lard care what my doctor says, it just seems right to me. Do we make our decisions on what helps me? No, we better not. Absolutely better not. Then all of a sudden what's right and wrong is very subjective. What's right for me may be very different than what's right for you. What are you going to tell your kids When your kids come home at the age of 14 and say, hey, I've decided it's okay for me to do ABC. And you say, over my dead body. They say, no, no, Dad, you taught me it's over my dead body. And this seems to me to be right. Now, how about this? Let's decide what's right and wrong based on what a majority of people think. We'll put it up to a vote. And maybe you say, well, no, 51%, uh, no, 51%, that's not a big enough majority, you know, to really decide right and wrong. Let's make it 70%. And, 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 you can vote if you're over 21, but i found most people don't really know what's going on until they're 25. So we're not going to count but maybe a third, those votes under 25. Are we going to let an elite all of a sudden decide what's right and wrong? Are we going to let the people who run the media decide what's right and wrong? Are we going to let the people who educate decide what's right and wrong? Are we going to let the people who vote decide what's right and wrong? Are we going to say Germany was fine killing the Jews because it had majority support? Hitler was elected. No, that's not adequate. Now, here's the latest. What's morally right and wrong is just built into the fabric of the universe. We can't necessarily explain it, but it's like math. Two plus two is four. Killing the Jews was wrong. It just was. How do you know? Well, you know. Well, how do you know? Well, it just is. I'm sorry. But this will not withstand cross-examination. There's no end of the line. Is the end of the line, well, it just is. If that's true, it's not adequate. Because when your kids or your grandkids come to you, if I'm talking to someone right now who's 25 or 30, my daughter's having a birthday today. Happy birthday, Rachel. Rachel one day may have children. And when she has children... And her child comes up to her and says, Hey, Mom, I've decided it's okay for me to shoplift. What? It's okay for me to shoplift because I'm going to take what I steal and give it to the poor, like Robin Hood. She's going to say, Oh, no, you're not. And the child's going to say, But Mom, it's a universal truth. It's just like 2 plus 2 is 4. It's okay to steal from those who have and give to those who don't. She's going to say, there's no universal truth in that. He's going to say, oh, yes, there is. There's no way to really argue this stuff if that's your reasoning. That is your head in the sand. That's ultimately equivalent in my mind to saying, well, it's, it's what Nietzsche indicted the philosophers for. I put a quote in your paper. Nietzsche said, all these philosophers think that they're so high and mighty and smart, what they've really done is taken their ideas of what they want to be right and wrong, and then they've built up this philosophy to justify it. I think he's dead right. I don't think that's adequate either. Now you may be saying, no, we know because of divine command. It's what God has said is right and wrong. That's right and wrong. Be careful. When you say something like that, and you say it to an Oxford philosopher, it makes you really glad you studied your Greek philosophy before you say it. Because the Oxford philosopher is going to say, are you familiar with Euth- you, you Euthyphro? Which is interesting because a lot of them seem to pronounce it Euthyphro, but that's not the way you'd pronounce it if they read Greek. It's Euthyphro. Emphasis is on the center syllable. Euthyphro. Euthyphro was faced with this dilemma. Euthyphro's a young man, and Plato writes it up, but it's a dialogue between Euthyphro and Plato's teacher, Socrates. And and here, we'll use some of these guys. This is Euthyphro. This is Socrates. They're going to court. Euthyphro is going to court because he's going to try and get his dad indicted. He thinks his dad did something wrong. Socrates is going to court because he's being indicted for corrupting the young people. And the irony of this is, is Socrates is portrayed as being right, and the young guy's already corrupted, and he's corrupting the old people. But be that as it may. It's a delightful story. It's really fun to read. But be that as it may, here's what happens. Socrates, Euthyphro... How come you're doing that? Well, Socrates, I'm doing this because there's some really bad stuff out there and I'm a specialist in morality and I'm a specialist in right and wrong and I'm going to make right, right. Socrates, oh, you're very, very smart, much smarter than I am. How do you know what's right? Euthyphro, oh, whatever the gods command. That's right, Socrates. But the gods disagree. Oh, good point. Their gods were too small. Good point. Well, whatever all the gods agree on, that's what's holy and that's what's right. All the gods must agree. Socrates says, ah, but are the gods agreeing on what's holy because it's holy? Or is it holy because they agree to it? Here's the way he says it. Is holy, put into our language with one God. Is holy, holy. Is right, right. Because God commands it? Or does God command it because it is right? That dilemma is a really difficult dilemma. If it's holy because God commands it, then it's just arbitrary. And God could change his mind and command something else. And today it might be wrong to commit genocide, but tomorrow God could say, oh, it's okay. Or maybe it's holy and the reason God commands it is because it is holy. So there's something that God even reports to now. Something higher and better than God. So this dilemma gets talked about by people in these academic places. And I just want to urge anybody who puts that dilemma out there to understand that, you know, if we put it in genocide, is genocide wrong because God forbids it? Or does God forbid it because it's wrong? Which is it? And I got asked that question. I looked at him, I said... I'm not new to this. Euthyphro was posed two choices by Socrates, but neither of those choices are the answer. Don't give me a multiple choice test and tell me to choose between A and B if the answer is C. None of the above. Or both of the above, depending upon how you want to interpret it. This is not the biblical view. This dilemma that it's either holy because god commands it or that god commands it because it's holy that's not god that's god too small let's go to what the bible says the bible has two words i really want us to look at here the word law and the word righteousness The word law we look at first. Now the word law is used in the Bible with a lot of different meanings. Sometimes it's the Ten Commandments. Sometimes it's the entire Old Testament. Sometimes it's uh, the books of Moses, the first five books. Sometimes it's just the law that was given by God. Sometimes it's meaning things that aren't even in the Bible. Just laws that are there for the people to follow that were part of the government. This is why Pastor Fleming this morning said there's a debate in the story he gave about Josiah when they found the book of the law as to what that was. Okay, so law has different meanings. It also has different functions in the Bible. One function of the law is to just restrain bad behavior from bad wicked people. You make it illegal to kill people, so people with an anger problem don't kill people. And if they do, they get punished. So some of the reason for law, according to the Bible, is that. Another reason is to instruct people. I want to know how to worship the Lord. So God has given me instructions that teach me how to worship Him. There's value in what it instructs. Paul says in Galatians, another reason for the law is to point us to Jesus. Because we see that we're not adequate on our own and we desperately need help. And we see that Jesus is the answer to the problems. So the law's got different functions. Hang on to that and let's look at the word righteousness. Righteousness in the Bible is not the Greek abstract idea of what good is. It's something very practical. It's an expression of right behavior that establishes God's will in the land. The Hebrew word for righteousness, is, is, it's off of the word tzedek. Tzedek is the Hebrew It's The idea is not just this, well, let's think of what good is and then we'll make it. No, it's very practical. It's what actions, it's an action word. What actions are an expression and, of establishing God's will in the land? So when the rich young ruler in Matthew 19 comes up to Jesus and says, what should I be doing to do the, oh, good teacher? He starts it out. Remember that? Good teacher. Jesus says, why are you calling me good? The only good one, really good, really righteous, the only one who really has God's will established in the land is God himself. And if you're recognizing me as God, then recognize me. But don't start thinking that there are good men in a pure sense like that. Romans 3, Paul says the same thing. He says there's not a good person. Not even one. No one even does a good deed in the sense of an eternal good deed. See, here's here's what's going on here. Oh, man, we don't have enough time for this. Okay, here's what's going on here. This is the biblical concept, if I could just be blunt about it. God exists... And God is not a supercomputer. God is not someone who just sits around and tries to decide, Oh, should I let him do that? Oh, no, that'd be too much fun. God is not some old man sitting in a rocking chair, calling balls and strikes. God is a moral... Being And by that, there are values that God possesses that are inherent to his nature. While I've got Rachel on the serving plate as one of my daughters, we could tell from a very, very, very early age that Rachel was one of those rare children who had within her nature kindness. She's just a really kind person. And it's just deeply ingrained within her. She's going to react kindly most of the time. It's just who she is. Well, God has a nature. There are values. There is morality to God. When we see the things that God values highly that are his characteristics, that are his traits, that are his values, those we've given a word to. Our word is good. And those things that God is not, that's what God is, we call evil. God is light, not darkness. God is love, not selfishness. It's His trait. It's who he is. This is not God saying, oh, I'm going to tell you what to do that's good because it's good. This is not God doing it because it's good. Euthyphro's dilemma is wrong, if we go back to the PowerPoint, please. Euthyphro's dilemma is wrong. It's not a question of, is it holy because God commands it? Or does God command it because it's holy? By the way, if you listen to Jay-Z, the rapper, he and Kanye West wrote a song that quotes this out of Plato. Kind of cool. I'll put it in the lesson. Aside from that, is holy, holy, he says is pious, pious, is holy, holy because God commands it? Or does God command it because it's holy? It's neither of those. Holy is holy because it's who God is. It's His nature. It is His DNA. It's His values. It's His traits. He does it because that's who He is. He acts out of His nature. His nature never changes. It is consistent. The same today, yesterday, and tomorrow. We call it good. But it's not because there's good out there and God tells us to go do the good. It's because God says to be like Him. He made us in His image. We are image bearers of God. So it's not God on one side and good on the other. Good belongs on the same side of the page as God. Good is just the word that we use to ascribe to those traits. You'll see it in three ways. Three places we find this to be true. First, in Revelation, this is what Scripture teaches... These lessons build off each other. If you weren't here to listen to the lesson on Revelation and God speaking through Scripture, I'd beg you to go back and get it if you're of interest. But we also see it in the incarnation. You want to see how God would behave on earth in human situations? Look at Jesus. Because he was God incarnate. He is God incarnate. Jesus Christ, God incarnate, shows us How God's ethic exists on this earth. So we have it revealed in scripture. We have it demonstrated and attested to by the writings of the apostles. But we also have it sensed. And so when these people say, well, I just know it. Or it's in the fabric of the universe. There's an element of truth in that. Because we're made in the image of God. So what's good to God is good to us. And what's evil to God is evil to us. And there's this part of us that just senses it. The problem is, is people don't want to add that God part to it. There are people in the world who want to believe in right and wrong and sense it. And know it's there, but they don't want to give credit to it being from God. And the problem these people have is, if God's not part of it, if it's not coming from God, then it's not really there. And they're lying to themselves, and Nietzsche was right. Nietzsche is the one who pronounced, God is dead. That was in his writings. It wasn't Time Magazine. It was Nietzsche who wrote that in the late 1800s. Now, can we say then that Hitler was morally wrong? Absolutely. Why? Simply because God commanded it? No, because it is contrary to God's nature. It violates God. God said, I have created man in my image. Don't take life needlessly. So what? Is this just something for the halls of Oxford? Absolutely not. This is very important. Let me tell you why. Because there are other issues of right and wrong that all of us face. And we can decide we're going to get it off the TV. Or more likely, we'll just decide, well, this is what seems to me to be right. I just have trouble believing that this would be wrong. This just seems right. If your God is not the source of what's good and right, then your God is too small. If you think you can sense the rhythm of right and wrong, but don't sense the rhythm of God, then your God is still too small. Because that's not the God who is. And you might as well go to Egypt and build some big stone... God edifice because you've recreated God and you who think and I if I think that we've got the divining rod in our minds to decide right and wrong apart from God all we've done is made ourselves God there's only one who is good in France there's a rod it's called the meter rod and it's the rod that defines what a meter is And if it's shorter, if you have a measurement that's shorter than that rod, it's shorter than a meter. If it's longer than the rod, it's longer than the meter. You want to divide that meter into a hundred pieces, you have a centimeter. A thousand pieces, you have a millimeter. But that rod decides what a meter is, and the world recognizes it, and it is the standard for a meter. And they could have arbitrarily made it shorter or longer, but it's what it is, and everybody agrees to it. When we talk about good, if we ever do it without referencing God as our measuring rod then whatever rod we're using is fake. God's got to be at the end of the line of that debate. Or the end of the line is not adequate to uphold society and move this world forward in God's will. And it's certainly not what is ultimately right and wrong. Only God establishes right and wrong. Whoever has seen me, Jesus Jesus said, has seen the Father. As people of faith, are we spending enough time watching Jesus? In the image of God, he created him male and female. We are image bearers, and so is everybody else. And that's what gives a human being value. And as Christian believers, we need to stand up for the value of every human life. And we need to do it recognizing that those human lives have value because they are created in the image of God. They have value whether we agree with them politically or not. They have value whether we agree with them economically or not. They have value whether we like the color of their skin. They have value whether or not we like the way they wear their hair. They have value whether or not we like their clothing sense. They have value because God made them. They have value whether they have the personality of a dish mop which I've been accused of. But they still have value because they're made in the image of God. Would you pray with me? Father God in heaven, we do lift you up as the measuring rod. You are beautiful beyond our comprehension. You are majestic. You are far more than we can think of. But Father, as we've glimpsed you, we've seen so much of awe and wonder and value. And in the seduction of this world, Father, we pray that we'll keep our eyes on you and our eyes on Jesus. Never letting go of your character and nature, but seeking to make it part of who we are. We long to be like you in that sense, Father. Thank you for your love and your attention to us on this small little speck in the universe. Giving your son to show us who you are and to pay the price for the fact that we are not morally fit to live with you on our own merit for eternity. We thank you for giving us a solution to our moral dilemma of being sinful creatures before a moral God. And we pray accordingly through Jesus, our righteousness. Amen.